Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman. Today I'm joined by Mark Evans, Senior Vice President of Gas Supply at Tellurian and formerly of BG Group. Um, Mark, thanks for, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. LNG has been one of the more dramatic stories, um, certainly in North America. We started um, the last decade with building um, regasification plants and importing LNG or expecting to import LNG. And we, we're in, we ended it with uh, speaking of exports of LNG. Can you, I guess, walk us through the what's behind that and, and some of the major changes that's um, caused? Yeah, I, I think that... We are, are blessed to have lived in interesting times. If we go back over the history of the modern U.S. natural gas, you might say that the U.S. gas market, you know, pro- finally became the market that it was meant to be with Order 636 in the early 1990s. Uh, during that time period of most of the 1990s, natural gas production was generally, you know, in abundance. Demand was growing, but we 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 reached this point in time where it became abundant or apparent, at least initially, that the U.S. was not going to have enough natural gas relative to the amount of demand that had been created. And a lot of that demand was built through uh, uh, natural gas fired power generation, which went through a rapid increase in the late 1990s and on into the 2000s. So there we sit in 2002, 2003, with the prospects of uh, declining natural gas pr- production and, and uh, rising uh, demand. The answer came in the form of LNG uh, imports, which had been those facilities had been uh, originally built in the early 1980s. So it was time to get those facilities uh, reactivated again. So we had uh, two or three, maybe four years of, of sporadic LNG imports. And then comes something new that changed the, the game, not only for the United States, but uh, really globally. And you can see that right now, uh, the, the global reach of U.S. Uh, shale production. Um, shale comes, changes the U.S. Na- natural gas market, has to lower prices. Sharif Suki, uh, at the time chairman uh, and CEO of Chenier Energy, got caught in that. They had uh, uh, just expanded uh, Sabine Pass. Uh, he's sort of stuck, needs an outlet, uh, realizes that shale is going to be, you know, bigger than anybody uh, could have imagined, probably outside of Aubrey McClendon, comes up with the idea to turn Sabine Pass around from uh, from an import facility to an export facility. And then you might say we're off to the races in the next uh, about six or seven years from 2014 up to last year, we probably added on the order you know, nine and a half BCF a day equivalent of LNG exports. And that's where we find ourselves today. Mm. And I guess that also highlights that the the scale of the investments required, you know, the time it takes to get these projects up and running. These are multi-year bets, right? Um, and it's, you know, it's a, I guess that highlights some of the, the challenges of playing on in the global LNG industry. Yes, the Global LNG industry, we used to like to say, uh, big boys with big toys. Historically, it was meant for the largest and the best of the international oil companies and the largest and the best of the uh, SOEs or state-run utilities uh, in Asia, and that was how the trade really developed. That is uh, not true today, but that has historically been the case. And what happens is in that industry, the capital deployment 
is so large or when the requirements of that capital are so large, it tends to create a lot of cyclicality in the LNG market. Uh, when uh, LNG comes on, it comes on in big hardly as ever um, linked up, if you will, to the, um, the, the, the demand of it. Uh, drives prices extremely high, drives prices extremely low. You might say one of my first learnings in the LNG market, the least intermediated commodity I'd ever seen with the most inelastic supply and the most inelastic demand. You might say in the mid-2000s, it was a market that was ripe and required and really requiring of intermediation. Yeah, because that's been another change as well, isn't it? The Since the, I guess, late 90s, where these were doled on on long-term contracts, you really had both it becoming more of a traded market and obviously being uh, intermediated by trading houses themselves as well. So, you, you, you know, that really has, um, and that's been a trend that's continued. Uh, yeah, that's, so I'll, uh, I'll talk a little bit about uh when I, I worked at BG Group for uh, about uh, 13 years, I was very fortunate uh, to sit in a seat uh, right at the front end of that. And what I quickly realized was that there was no competition in the market to intermediate. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Nigeria would have a cargo, and it would be available from uh, date X to date Y. At the same time, the Japanese might need a cargo from date Z to date A. I realized that ships are just virtual pipelines and that if you can provide the product to both the producer and the customer, there was substantial rent in the chain to, to accrue to the person that could actually provide or, and aggregate those intermediation assets and in LNG in the early days, those were in the form of ships. Yeah, and I guess we hear increasingly Gas has come from being kind of a closed loop, um, to quote an earlier guest on the podcast, to now really a, it is a global market. And we're seeing firms more and more have to look at it as such and have global teams um, supporting um, their commercial activities. Um, you know, that's where we are now, right? Yes, yeah, so right. So I'll, I'll give you some fun facts, and I think we'll tie this into how this is driving and changing perhaps the demand for human capital in these markets. But uh, let's look at, let's look at how this market has grown. And it's quite phenomenal, actually. In 2010, we'll use that as a base year. There were 10 LNG importing countries. It truly was the club, as I, I talked about earlier. In 2019, so just 10 years later, there were 42 LNG importing countries. Wow. I think just yesterday, you might have seen two announcements that Myanmar is adding uh, free gas in 2020. And oddly, Cyprus, the country in the middle of the Mediterranean that sits on some of the uh, largest recent uh, Eastern Mediterranean natural gas reserves, is adding uh, regas capacity. Uh, so that's you know quite a lot of growth. Let's look at the U.S. Gulf Coast. When Sabine Pass Train 1 came on in 2016, I believe late 2016, there was one party in the U.S. Today, there are over 50 parties that have contracts to lift LNG out of the U.S. I, I believe the exact number is 54. Wow. The growth is tremendous. If we look at just the, the LNG industry by itself using 2010 as a, as a base share, the, the industry was about 32 BCF a day uh, in 2010. And last year was about 51 BCF a day. So if I did my math uh, correctly, that's roughly about a 6% per annum 
uh, growth. And I, and I, I truly believe that we are just scratching the surface of the potential of the growth in the, in the global LNG market in particular, or more broadly speaking, the global natural gas business. Uh, the, um, I don't know if people broadly know this, but today just there are 154 BCF a day of natural gas equivalent burned as coal in power generation. I was going to ask what's what's driving that. So the, can you talk to that a bit more on the other side? So this is a, a secular shift globally for, you know, in, in power generation from um, to or to natural gas. Yeah, well, let's talk about that and, and the energy transition, which is obviously um, highly topical today. Um, the energy transition or you might say, you know, the decarbonization of primary energy consumption cannot happen without the broad and global availability of natural gas. It is key. It is a partner to that transition, and it won't happen in the way that it needs to happen uh, without the global availability of natural gas. You, you've seen this huge increase in demand for natural gas and increasing demand for natural gas around the world, um, fueled by um, or you know, fueling the LNG, um, all the infrastructure that's being built. Um, how has that changed? We spoke a little bit earlier about um, the, I guess, the, the trading of, of LNG. How has that changed the, the, the markets more broadly with so much more demand, so much more infrastructure available? What, what's going on? What do, you, what do you see in terms of, I guess, both the participants as organizations as well as as individuals? Who, you know, how has trading, trading changed? Well, I, I think um... – that the LNG markets are organizing themselves or starting to organize themselves more like the oil markets. As, as the LNG markets have grown and they've grown for a number of reasons, right? We talked a little bit about uh, the, the role of natural gas, the uh, secular role of natural gas in the energy transition. We talked about uh, natural gas, uh, the potential to grow and, and displace uh, coal and, and liquid fuels uh, in power generation. So that is really driving the change for the type of people that need to work in this industry. We started off this conversation uh, or this segment by saying that the natural gas markets and the, in particular the LNG markets will organize themselves more like oil. Uh, and so you need to think about it as, as a, a commoditized business. Um, uh, the, the increase in liquidity in the market in particular uh, we could talk about JKM swaps as, as being one of the the, the, the most obvious uh, uh, evidence of increasing liquidity. By way of example, in 2018, JKM swaps traded about five, uh, five BCF a day. In 2019, that came to 15 BCF a day. So this is obviously attracting a lot of participants to the industry. Um, as I said, it will organize itself more like oil, and we should talk about what's driving that. The markets in general are requiring more intermediation and not less intermediation. Uh, there is the fragmentation in the industry. Uh, as I said, when you, we used to refer to the LNG market as a club, uh, a club of 10 producers in 10 consuming countries, you might say. That is not the case today. Uh, look at Shri Suki as an example. He was not an ExxonMobil. He was not Shell. He was able to create Sabine Pass. And when he did that, he dislocated the industry. 
he made the industry more democratized, more, more available. So now you have the same thing happening on the other side. Uh, you have, for the first time, uh, a wave of deregulation occurring uh, globally, you might say. Um, uh, it's fun to think about. Uh, Rick Perry recently said that the U.S. is going to export freedom gas. And he was correct in saying that, but he spoke about it from an energy security perspective vis-a-vis potentially Russia and some of the uh, destabilizing potentially destabilizing uh, uh, actions they take from the time. Mm. Um, but in reality, I think U.S. has ex- been exporting freedom gas virtually since the early 1990s when uh, the U.S. did Order 636. That started the deregulation, if you will, of the gas market. Uh, finally reached Europe several years ago. Uh, Europe as a country or as a group of countries was obviously highly uh, fragmented, uh, highly entrenched incumbents, very little transparency, very little liquidity, very little meaningful third-party access. Today, that's not the case. That's rolling through to Asia now. You can start to see, uh, uh, albeit at a a differing pace, uh, you might say the Japanese are way ahead, uh, the Koreans are following, and even the Chinese are taking certain steps to... uh, to unbundle, if you will, uh, their industry, much like 636 did in the U.S. in 1992. Mm. Um, so in a way, you know, am I right in thinking that I guess your hypothesis, at least, is that the LNG markets themselves the, the, uh, are driving liberalization of gas markets around the world, the, the unbundling of gas markets, as we've seen in the U.S. first and then Europe you, you see that the LNG market is driving that change on a global basis now. Yeah, so I think what 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 we saw in the U.S. in the 1990s in the creation of this wonderful gas market is rolling through the world right now, and it's important. And, and at the same time, you have increasing liquidity, increasing transparency, increasing regulatory access, and what this is doing, and why I said the markets will require more intermediation and not less going forward, is because it's allowing people, companies, second tier, third tier companies, um, steel companies that could never access the, the, uh, uh, the LNG markets themselves. They now for the first time are able to access this. And this is really good news because it allows them to respond uh, to uh, price signals. It's really good news for people that do what we do uh, because as I said, it requires more intermediation and not, uh, and not less intermediation. So these are really, really exciting opportunities for companies that can position themselves uh, in the space to take advantage of these uh, individual requirements that these companies have that we could never access before. Which is going to require a significant you know, number of individuals, right? When you think about the, I guess, the marketing teams um, to go in country to access these CNIs and so forth. The, the the structurers as you mentioned to, to structure the deals you know it's a that really is a, a huge um, as you say opportunity but also those are those are big teams and challenging teams to build yeah so you might think about it like this the the US is roughly is about twenty five percent of the global gas market and we think about the totality of the people that work in our gas market across all the segments of it well times that by four and I bet that's on the low end. And those people don't exist uh, uh, necessarily 
in those countries, if you were to visit Thailand and sit with PTT, uh, you would get a very quick understanding of PTT's local challenges, but you would also not find a person there that has those historical skill sets or historical training to to understand and define and ultimately solve those problems. So I, you know, it's exciting uh, when you travel around the world and, and you see what's going on. And it puts me right back to the United States in 1994, 1995, sitting in Manhattan, speaking to Con Ed, who for the first time had to figure out how to procure natural gas around a variable load schedule with a bunch of assets that was handed to them for the first time that they had never previously worked with. Mm. So who does well? In that, what what assets, you know, what what types of businesses now? You know, I think of, you know, oil traders, for example, have reach in those in you know around the world and have you know people who have some of those skills. What types of organisations do you think will compete for that global market? So I think, as I've mentioned several times, the markets will require more intermediation, a lot, lot less intermediation. So with that said, I think we look at well, who has has demonstrated that they have these skills and the wherewithal uh, uh, to, to accomplish that, uh, the, uh, the willingness and ability to absorb uh, risk, uh, cross-commodity risk, uh, cross-currency risk, logistical risks. Uh, you obviously, I think there are two categories there that kind of leap off the page, if you will. You know, the first would be the IOCs, uh, uh, that have decided to be in this space and, and, and obviously that's Shell and obviously that's Total. And I may be leaving off one or two others. Uh, but you know, I, I instantly think of those two companies. And then I go to the other, uh, category, which are, uh, the, the merchant oil companies that have obviously created phenomenal value in intermediating in oil markets historically. Well, that same opportunity exists for them. In natural gas, LNG, and I would even say even more so today, um, if you think about what VTOL and its competitors do, they, as much as they are logistical companies that have the ability to manage risk, they manage risk across logistical change, chains, and they manage risk across uh, uh, credit chains, if you will. So if you think about where the growth is coming from in the in the global gas market, it's not necessarily those OECD countries that are really kind of um, probably not in growth modes in terms of primary energy consumption. It's the emerging markets in Asia. What do those emerging markets require? Well, quite often it requires credit intermediation or the willingness to uh, to create uh, to take credit risk. It also needs the companies with the skills and the appetite and the capital to help invest or create the downstream infrastructure that unlocks that latent demand that I was talking about earlier uh, uh, in this session. So, you know, to put a finer point on that, I think the VTOLs, the uh, Trafigura, the Glencore, the Gunboards, uh, along with a, a subset of the IOCs will really uh, benefit. And in a way, I think the best thing that those collection of companies can do for the industry more broadly is to help create that access for natural gas. As I said, natural gas globally was a club and it wasn't easily accessible to everybody or every country because of the capital costs to 
access natural gas, which is not the case today. It's the great liberalization, the democratization of natural gas. Mm. There is a, a catch, though, in some ways, which we mentioned right at the start, which is, I guess, unlike oil, where you can actually the downstream infrastructure is pretty light, relatively speaking. You know, you have to build these huge regas plants. You need the technical capabilities, the capital to to do that. How does that affect things? Because the 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 independent trading houses aren't necessarily or haven't been focused on big projects like that. Yeah, that is true. So the, uh, one of the, they, uh, historically, as I, you know, going back to the expression, big boys with big toys, uh, the Japanese, by way of example, for energy security, because they had no other access to, uh, to global gas markets, would build very large, very expensive onshore regas facilities. And in the Japanese case, most of those uh, storage facilities were underground. The, one of the great democratizers of uh, of LNG, lowering the barriers or the cost of entry, has been FSRUs. Um, I mentioned previously that in 2010, there were 10 importing countries, and today there are 42. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but a good number of those that increase came in the form of FSRUs. FSRU, mm. uh, you know, broadly is is about a two year investment, uh, whereas an onshore world scale regas facility could be a four or five year investment. And I think I've heard uh, we're less than a one year uh, investment. So that's quite an amazing change, both in terms of time and capital to access a global gas market. Mm. And those are, I guess, for the benefit of us that might not know the acronym, these are, I guess, floating storage and regasification. Um, ships or units, right? That's exactly it. And in practice, what that really looks like, uh, in, in some instances, shipyards uh, uh, build them uh, purposeful belts. In, in many other cases, uh, they are uh, conversions of older uh, uh, LNG uh, carriers uh, that were using uh, an older propulsion technology that is no longer competitive in, in the markets. Mm. Looking forwards, You've obviously got the rise of renewables as well. Do you think that natural gas has a, a long story still to tell, or is this a part of the? Um, you know, it, it will have a a period of dominance before we we transition fully to renewables. It's probably a bit of a challenging question to answer without a crystal ball. But what, what's the the thoughts there? No, I, I I think the opposite. I think we are at the start of something, obviously, and that broader something is 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 the transition. I think that the willingness of of companies and countries to engage in the energy transition, in the absence of, uh, in some cases, real governmental policy. Is, is why I say why I'm so optimistic about the role of natural gas uh, in primary energy consumption and, and more broadly the energy transition. So I think we're more at the beginning of this, we're in any two or three than we are in any seven or eight or nine of, of natural gas. Now, some people may not say that of oil, uh, by way of example, which grows roughly 1% per year. Global natural gas demand is growing you know, 2-ish percent per year. The global LNG is growing four to five percent per year, so the opportunity is tremendous. I, I mentioned earlier uh, the latency in the in the global gas market. So one of my constant frustrations is the is the larger consultancies. 
consistently underestimate the growth of, 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 of LNG. And they do it because a lot of the latency or the, the ability for natural gas to grow may not be tied to economic output. It may be tied to, as I said earlier, just the latency in the market. And um, it, the numbers are shockingly large, as I, I think I just mentioned, the size of the coal market that the natural gas market can access, the liquid fuel market. You know, I'll give you another number. I believe in 2018 or 19, almost 100 million tons of liquid fuels were burned in power generation. And not only that is that carbon intensive, but it's also economically intensive in the in the in the fact that LNG, you might say, tr- trades at ten percent on a nor- ten to twelve percent of rent on a normalized basis. Uh, certainly, uh, things are different today. Whereas these refined products are, you might say, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen percent. So think about Saudi Arabia. I think Saudi Arabia consumes much more than 20 million tons of liquid fuels and power generation daily. Think about the opportunity for Saudi Arabia to import LNG, American LNG, it's a 10 to 12% of Brent, and export oil that was previously, you know, burned in domestic power generation to foreign markets in the form of a refined product at, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19% of Brent. That that's a multi-billion opportunity, a uh, dollar per year opportunity for the Saudis alone. Mm. It's fascinating as well because I'm just thinking through the ramifications of this. I'm a CFO of uh, you know industrial here in North America. Previously, I only you know at least for the last decade, natural gas prices have been pretty stable and very low. Suddenly, I'm now competing on a global market, but place for for my fuel. Oh, yeah. So I think this is actually a great segue because we were talking about the, op- the global opportunity for the human capital markets in terms of what what are required to take full advantage of this opportunity. We talked a little bit about the people. We talked a little bit about the companies and who might win. Think about this. I quite often speak to U.S. natural gas producers, and I usually start off by saying, you know, in your entire career, you've only had to worry about one thing, and that one thing is Henry Hub. I said, today, that is no longer good enough. You have to understand the global gas markets. You have to employ the people that, to help you understand what's going on. And I usually go into an anecdote, and I usually say, do you know today that two uh, uh, Spanish tankers are loading at Sabine Pass? And the answer is, you know, no. And I, and then I usually ask, do you know why they're loading? And the answer is always no. And it always go, comes back to that refrain that, uh, uh, the rain in Spain. And it really does matter because on that day, the Spanish were going through a quite horrific drought. The role of the natural gas market in, in Spain historically has been as that kind of substitution fuel and the, and in the absence of rain for the hydro. So these things are important. And I always say one day, I said, you guys generally have all cheered and rightfully so uh, the notion of LNG exports. I said, but you've sent out a price signal to the global gas markets now uh, that you should also expect that price signal to come back. And when that price signal comes back, it's going to impact natural gas market here, the Henry Hub market. You better be able to understand what's driving global gas demand. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to explain why Henry Hub went up or down on any given day or any given month because the price signal may be coming from a distant foreign market. Yeah, fascinating. 
usually doesn't that conversation doesn't usually end well because I don't think there's the willingness to want to learn more about the global gas markets, but it's no longer a nice to have for these companies. It is a must have. Yeah. And we are, we ourselves are seeing, whereas previously you'd have a European gas team and a US gas team, you know, now they're all sitting under one leader typically and, and, and called one desk. Um, and it seems to be those organizations that are looking at that setting up for this global market, which albeit might be quite nascent at the moment, but you know, um, certainly lots of reasons to be optimistic um, given what you're saying. Let me just add one point there. So that's actually dead on. Um, uh, somebody smart recently said that you should think of Europe now as just a 51st state from, a, from an energy perspective. And why is that? You might say that Europe last year saved the U.S. gas market in, in the sense that it allowed us to continue to export a lot of LNG that ultimately ended up in Europe, which was balancing at the time, and ultimately ended up in storage. So that's Europe's ability to continue to do that is actually you know, coming to an end right now. With most experts think European gas storage will be full in August. Uh, we can debate if it's July or September, but it does look like it's on that path. Therefore, that's why you're seeing the U.S. now do the heavy lifting in terms of balancing the glo uh, global gas market. You might say that, you know, from a peak LNG send out of about nine and a half fees a day down to about five, you know, we are doing the heavy lifting now. And that's why that gentleman said that, you know, you think of Europe as the 51st state from an energy perspective. So if you're not going to sit all of those people like in close proximity to themselves, you're not going to win the game. Mm. We are living in a, a pandemic. One comment that I guess we're increasingly discovering at HC is, or our feeling is that it's not necessarily creating new trends, um, but accelerating existing ones. What have you seen? Have there been any interesting impacts of, from COVID-19 on the LNG markets or the, the, that opportunity you discuss? Yeah, I think um, COVID-19, as bad as it is, may produce some incremental benefits. So one of the things I think that we've learned or the scientists have learned about COVID-19 is its lethalness it, uh, depends on several factors. One of those factors may be uh, uh, incidences of underlying respiratory problems such as uh, asthma, uh, by way of example, or any kind of lung uh, mis uh, dysfunction. So if you think about some of the countries, the emerging natural gas markets, uh, not so much China, uh, but, but India, I think that the availability of natural gas and its impacts on the environment relative to these respiratory issues and now relative to COVID, I'm really hoping will help accelerate and not decelerate uh, the conversion to natural gas in lieu of coal, because it really does... It, incrementally exposed the population who is regularly exposed to these in, uh, poor air uh, conditions, uh, whether it be CO2 or. Yeah, and we saw those fascinating images of blue skies over Delhi, you know, and Mumbai and, and around the world. And I think that's probably going to leave quite an indelible mark on you know, on the world, um, yeah, you know, as, as people are, have suddenly had a window into, you know, how much, um, damage, uh, you know, to their, to the local environment, 
um, these particulates are doing. Um, I agree with you. I think that, you know, again, it's another, we were already on that path, but this might be the uh, a catalyst for that change um, as populations demand cleaner air. Yeah, I'm hoping that uh, countries uh, will now start to recognize the hidden social costs of extremely poor air quality. And it is definitely time to get on board with the energy transition and natural gas is a key component of that. Mm. Again, that only that, that creates, you know, demand for people with all the skills that we, we talked about earlier. Yeah. What what is Tellurian's role in this? What again, I keep saying it sounds like a, a huge opportunity. Yeah, so I think I'll answer it more broadly and then narrowly. We talked a little bit about who who are the winners. And we talked a little bit about the intermediation uh, folks as, as one of the obvious. And we mentioned a subset of the IOCs. And I previously mentioned uh, Shell and Total. I should probably add BP to that list. And we added the traders. You know, we talked a little bit about who are the winners from the consumer side. And we talked about access to these second and third tier buyers uh, really for the first time, which is, you know, the, I might call it the regulatory revolution that's spreading through the world. Uh, much like Rick Perry talked about freedom gas. But I think from, uh, and then we have to obviously go to the LNG production side. And we talked about the market as being commoditized. The way to win the game or be able to participate in the game is to not be the, obviously the marginal producer. You have to put a product on the water at a price that is not in it ever going to be the marginal price. Uh, so if we think about where Tellurian stands in that, that is exactly our business model. And the, you know, we talked a lot about commoditization. We talked a lot about these things. We talked about the need to differentiate and commoditize markets, much like the oil markets. How do you add value? This comes to Tellurian. The entire business model is to get LNG on the water at the lowest possible price in the United States so that we're never the marginal player. How do we accomplish that? Through integrated chains. Uh, the Tellurian proposition uh, through Driftwood LNG is to integrate uh, production at cost, uh, which we are blessed in the United States with uh, uh, natural gas production that competes at a world scale. Do that in a location with very little uh, 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 exploration risk, if you will, uh, just the P risk or the production risk. Get it shipped to the coast at the cheapest possible price run it through a liquefaction plant that is uh, modular by its design and cheap and flexible, and you're on the water at a very attractive price. We think that is a fundamentally better product, obviously, uh, than some of the more traditional products uh, in the U.S., one of which was, you know, as I said, you know, started by Sharif Suki, the SPA model, and, and then followed on with tolling models at, uh, at other uh, facilities, including Cameron, Freeport, and uh, CodePoint in particular. Mm. One question I guess I have is the news has been filled with the beginning part of this year, certainly with, you know, the uh, the shale revolution um, potentially uh, under threat as, you know, the, the economics of a lot of these um, projects have, have not panned out. Um, investors, lots, you know, private equity groups, whomever are pulling back. Um, you know, is that a threat to to that abundant supply of natural gas? It's a really good question. 
um, the there are pools of capital uh, in particular regions or countries that will likely not to be substantial investors in, in hydrocarbon-based economies going forward. Having said that, the world is a very big place and the role of Tellurian and Driftwood LNG is actually consistent with ESG investing in that we are responsibly producing U.S. natural gas, uh, shipping it to the coast, putting it on ships and taking it to countries that have been, you might say, less than responsible with their uh, en environment. Mm. That is a net additive uh, to the ESG argument. And therefore, I do not feel that the availability of capital will be a problem if you're doing fundamentally right things for the, the environment. Yeah, no, I agree. I think um, it's a, it's a, a topic we are increasingly asked about ourselves. Our, you know, um, candidates ask us about our clients' ESG policies, and, and you know, it's becoming increasingly vital for companies to, you know, have that value set in in play in, in everything that they do. Um, and I guess on the natural gas front, nothing fixes high prices like high prices, right? Um, as as is the want of commodities. Um, and nothing fixes low prices like low prices. And what you're seeing today in the in the global gas market that nobody will talk about is you are seeing the creation of a lot of structural demand. Uh, obviously, uh, highly elastic sources of demand help balance to the market, but underpinning that is something that's more structural. At the same time, these low prices are uh, uh, either eliminating or stalling uh the constant capital investment that's required in the industry. And so it is highly possible, if not probable, that you will see, you know, a much more robust um, view of natural gas prices uh, uh, sooner than later uh, because of that underlying structural demand that's being created off the back of extremely attractive prices. Mm. And as you say, locally, but also globally. Oh, completely. Yeah. yeah so, this is part of our industry, and we have to build our businesses to manage the cycles. Uh, that's uh, what uh, when Tellurian, when we started this journey four years ago, this that was exactly our theme was that we realized that this is a cyclical business. It's becoming more commoditized, and much like an oil producer, you have to think about what is your cost structure relative to where that supply line uh, crosses that demand line and the price of which those two meet. You never want to be that individual or that company yeah. or that resource. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk, Mark. Um, you know, we've obviously known each other for a, for a very long time now, um, and I really appreciate you coming on the on the on the podcast. Um, I think it's been a fascinating discussion, and you know, it's exciting. I think um, it's exciting for our industry. Um, if you know, as a as we build a a global gas market. Yeah. So just, uh, yeah, thank you also. And we ha have, uh, uh, known each other for a long time, which simply means I'm older, old and, and, and older than you, but thank you. <laughs> These all, uh, as you said, challenging times, uh, 2020 has been, uh, not a good year. Uh, but it's sometimes, uh, predictably as these bad years, uh, always give way to, uh, to much better years. Let's just hope that we have, uh, more good years than bad years going forward. Yeah, here's to that. Well, thanks again, and uh, yeah, look forward to uh, to having you back on in a, in, in a little bit, and you know, seeing uh, how much this has panned out. Thank you. Anytime. Perfect. Thanks, Mark. 
Bye. Thank you for listening to the HC Insider podcast. To find out more, go to hcinsider.global.